Good afternoon. On behalf of the Federalist Society of Mississippi, I want to welcome each of you to today's luncheon debate exploring the proper role of the state's attorney general. Are they undermining democratic principles or protecting the public interest? And we're very uh, fortunate to have, I think, an extraordinary panel and a very appropriate venue, uh, particularly since the role of the attorney general at the state level has been I think it expanded and broadened, at least in the public's mind and in principle, here in this state through a number of noteworthy suits uh, proffered by our state's attorney general. So today we, uh, we are pleased to have this program and, and discuss this issue. And the first thing I want to tell you about is that the Federalist Society is a national organization. We are a state chapter, and the Federalist Society is a conservative libertarian group that that exists to explore the legal order and believes that the separation of powers is, is central to our democracy and that the state exists to preserve freedom and that the judiciary should not make the law but interpret it. And central to all these theories is that we place a premium on individual liberty, traditional values, and the rule of law. Today's speakers are uh, both experts in their respective fields. Uh, we're fortunate to have Michael Greva, who's a Washington resident. He's a John G. Searle scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, Dr. Greva comes here in, in place of John Fund, who was drawn away at the last minute by a foreign editorial assignment. But Dr. Greva is no uh, uh, poor second. He's uh, actually a far greater expert on this area and you'll find him very informed and has written a very long uh, treatise, in fact, on this, uh, this whole subject. Dr. Greva is the uh, Federalism and Liability Project Director at American Enterprise Institute. Uh, for, for those who don't know, AEI is uh, one of the top two or three think tanks in Washington, uh, possessing such figures as uh, Robert Bork and uh, Newt Gingrich, among others. Uh, Dr. Greva is a native of Hamburg, Germany, and has a master's and doctoral degrees from uh, Cornell in, in, in government. Uh, we also have today uh, Joey Langston from Boonville, Mississippi. Uh, when I started practicing law in Pasigula, I first heard the name Scruggs, and when I moved to Tupelo, Mississippi, I heard the name Langston. And, uh, and pe people around northeast Mississippi just say Joey, you know, and you know who they're talking about. He's a, a man who is built a uh, now a third generation law practice in a small town he's never left his community he uh, beyond being a lawyer is a is a philanthropist a business leader you'll find that his uh, involvement extends beyond the legal profession and is in chamber of commerce activities and school activities and represents the board of supervisors in that community up there and and so he is uh, well known in those parts but he's also a uh, an international uh, trial lawyer and has done exceptionally well both in terms of his numbers of verdicts and trials before juries and also in the size of the verdicts that come from those juries as well as a number of criminal cases which he's defended uh, clients successfully in despite uh, huge odds. Joey uh, has also written on this subject and is uh, it's quite appropriate for him to be here because he defended this, or represented the state of Mississippi in a, in a tax fraud suit against MCI, 
which he uh, won successfully. And uh, so, in part, the uh, the issue of this uh, day is is in part deals with his representation of the state and some of those issues around lawyer selection and and the AG and what role he occupies. So, uh, Joey has thought about this in, in both academic as well as practical terms. We uh, had a number of questions that our moderator today will uh, explore with the uh, debaters, and I, I want to thank attorneys Jim Craig, Mike Wallace, and Luther Munford for helping to come up with a balanced approach on some of these questions so that we'd have all sides represented. Finally, I want to uh, introduce our moderator. Um, a good debate has a great moderator, and in this case, we have Mississippi's most respected and credible political print journalist. And Sid Salter has had a 32-year career, and he's only 48 years old, so he's uh, still got a ways to go. But in the, in the youthful career that he's maintained, he's already in the Press Hall of Fame, Mississippi Press Association Hall of Fame. He's uh, won the Emmerich Award twice. He's uh, been National Alumnus of the Year for Mississippi State. Uh, he's a, a native of Philadelphia, has deep roots in forest, and is now the prospective editor uh, for the Clarion Ledger, our state newspaper. And his column appears in 53 papers around the state. So all of us wake up in the morning or go to bed at night reading the thoughts and, uh, and, and the, really the voice of Mississippi politics. So it's my pleasure to turn the debate over now to Sid Salter. Thank you, Brad. Uh, Billy Munger asked me what sort of moderator I was going to be, whether I was going to be a moderate moderator. Or, uh, uh, Billy always likes to know the odds uh, when we get started. And I told him that I was going to do my dead-level best uh, to be uh, fair. He said he'd uh, reserve judgment on that till later. Uh, I am delighted to be here today and to uh, share in this event. Um, we're going to go at this uh, in an effort to maximize the amount of time that we actually uh, have our debaters uh, speaking to you. So we're going to... Uh, uh, They've been introduced, and we're going to ask them now to come to the podium. Uh, Michael Greva is our guest and from out of state, and for that reason, we're going to uh, ask him to go first with a five-minute opening statement. Uh, that will be followed by a five-minute opening statement from uh, Mr. Langston, and then at that point, we'll begin a question and answer. During question and answer, uh, we will pose in an alternating fashion. We'll pose questions to the debaters. The uh, question uh, will allow for a three-minute answer and then a two-minute rebuttal from the other debater. That'll be the format. We look forward to it. Mr. Greva? Thanks, Sid. Uh, thanks, Joey, for participating in this, and thank the uh, Federalist Society for um, inviting me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Um, as was mentioned, I was a last-minute substitute for John Fund. Uh, and Joey Langston had no uh, foreknowledge of that, but nonetheless, I mean, five days after that was arranged, um, I got a paper prepared by his law firm on my various writings. And um, it's 20 pages long, has 83 footnotes, and I thought, wow, these guys are good. Um, th they are good. Trial lawyers are much better than defense lawyers for a very good reason. They have to be entrepreneurial. 
whereas defense lawyers, of course, uh, the worse their clients do, the more money they make in the long run. Um, so, and, and this is more testimony um, to that. Um, you can get that paper as well as the paper, my paper, that it is about uh, from the Federalist Society or, uh, as far as my own uh, musings go, uh, from the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. Uh, I want to speak a few, we'll, we'll cover a lot of points, I think. Uh, as, as an initial statement, I just want to make one point, uh, and that is about how to think about attorneys general in the larger context of American federalism. Um, you start, when you think about federalism, it seems to me, with two basic intuitions. One is, there's got to be some distinction between national affairs and local affairs. And that is, however difficult that distinction is to draw in any particular circumstance uh, and context, that is a very basic and elementary uh, uh, decision in, or, or distinction in American federalism. From that basic distinction follows a second uh, somewhat less well-acknowledged distinction, and that is between the state's internal affairs versus their external um, affairs, or put differently, between uh, the state's internal police powers and uh, interstate commerce. Um, it, over time, uh, the distinction has taken various forms, but it's always the same distinction, and the intuition is that states should kindly regulate their own internal affairs um, at that, they're very, very good and, and very trustworthy. Uh, they can't be trusted to regulate the affairs of other states and their citizens. That's not some right-wing intuition uh, that I cranked up. That's Justice Brandeis, right? When Brandeis, Brandeis wrote famously of the states as laboratories of democracy, he said they can serve as lab laboratories of democracy and conduct experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Now, um, the, the basic difficulty with that federalist scheme, as elegant as it uh, looks after one minute of talking, is that states constantly push up against the boundary of internal versus external affairs. And that is because every politician's dream is to tax and regulate people outside his jurisdiction. They can't run away from him. They can't vote him out of office. Um, and so, and, and politicians in other states, of course, have symmetrical uh, incentives um, and AGs in modern times have made that politician's dream a reality. That's not controversial at all. Uh, the biggest um, uh, attorney general campaigns in over the past decades were advertised as national regulatory campaigns rather than attempts to fix some local ailment. Uh, as I try to explain in that paper, that uh, arrangement has tons of problems. Uh, for the sake of brevity, I'll just mention three. Um, first, uh, most of these AG campaigns uh, have been started in areas that over the past 30 years, 30-plus 30 years, the country at a national level has tried to deregulate uh, telephones, uh, financial services, uh, airlines, and on and on and on. Maybe that deregulatory campaign, which uh, I should emphasize, was started under the Carter administration and continued under the Clinton administration, so it was not a partisan affair. Maybe all of that was a big mistake. Maybe we should reverse that. But it seems to me if we want to reverse that general decision of letting markets work, um, that debate ought to be had at a national level and not in a helter-skelter state-by-state process. Second... Uh, it's, in fact, worse than state by state because uh, under current rules where every state 
can regulate transactions outside its boundaries. Uh, as a business, you gain nothing by settling or accommodating some regulatory authority that represents the mean or the median. You have to settle with the most aggressive uh, and most pro-regulation-minded state attorney general and state regulator, and that means that on the margin, the most aggressive state will always dominate the entire universe uh, of transactions, regardless of what other states in the country may wish to do. And my third problem with AG regulation as it's, it's come to pass is that it's a closed process. That is to say, um, while the investigations themselves and the prosecutions are launched with a great deal of publicity, the settlements themselves take uh, uh, place behind closed doors among lawyers. There's no notice and comment. There are no experts in the room. There are no economists, just a bunch of lawyers, and the whole process is driven not by any evidence, not by any uh, sound facts. It's driven by settlement incentives, and I don't trust that process. And along with that uh, goes a second and, and more systemic and larger uh, worry, and it's, it's this. We have learned over the past years, I think, that there are now in the economy enormous incentives uh, for cheating, self-dealing, and outright lying. That is true of corporate executives. It is also true, however, of trial lawyers. And it is also true of state officials and especially state attorneys general. Once upon a time, you could think of yourself if you were an attorney general as an officer of the court. Now the office comes with an expectation that you will deliver scalps and you will deliver money. Uh, and so th the way these settlements work is you lock three constituencies, trial lawyers, state AGs, um, uh, and corporate executives and their lawyers into a room, and they have all the bad incentives in the world, all of them. And then you hope that out of that closed process comes something that even remotely resembles, resembles good sense. I don't believe it for a minute. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Grubin. Now, Mr. Langston with a five-minute opening statement. Good afternoon, and it is absolutely my pleasure to be here today and to have been invited to speak at this forum. Um, I take issue with one of the things that my esteemed opposition said, esteemed opposition said on the front end, something about trial lawyers being better at stating their position than defense lawyers. This room is full of defense lawyers that are very good at it and challenge me every time I have a, uh, a case. I have to get up early and stay up late just to stay with them. Over the past several years, state's attorneys general has significantly stepped up civil law enforcement efforts against large, wealthy corporate wrongdoers. Proponents of this trend uh, suggest that it is a healthy exercise of state police power while critics suggest that it's a violation of fundamental constitutional principles such as federalism. I am a proponent. At its core, federalism is the allocation of governmental authority to, level, to the level of government best suited to address the problem at hand. Thus, there are two sides to federalism. One is protecting state authority when appropriate, and the other is ensuring the federal government has power where national rules are necessary. 
The question posed by the Attorney General's use of multi-state litigation is whether the practice impermissibly encroaches upon the sphere of federal authority. It does not. That is legally so, and that is practically so. Competition among federal and state governments was part of the constitutional framers' vision of federalism. The framers anticipated that a dual system would allow the public to give most of their confidence where they may discover it to be most due, federal or state. Thus, the framers envisioned the state and federal governments would compete to persuade the public which was better suited to regulate in a particular field. In other words, the framers contemplated that the public may place more confidence in state law enforcement efforts than it would in federal law enforcement efforts and made constitutional provisions to allow for increased state action. And that's what we're here to talk about today, whether or not Attorney General's activism, coordinating with each other, coordinating with lawyers in the private sector to pursue civil litigation and somehow encroaches upon the pure theme of federalism. I suggest that Attorney General's activism defends against regulatory capture. In other words, it is far more difficult for interest groups and well-financed corporate interests to unduly influence 50 states' attorneys general and, and the federal authorities than it is to unduly influence a single federal regulatory body. Moreover, in the event one state or agency is captured by special interest, there are others who will not be so captured and will enforce the law, checks and balances. I also believe that attorney general's activism allows a government to maximize its resources. In today's world of multinational corporate offenders and expensive litigation, and there are business leaders and very accomplished people in this room know that all litigation these days is expensive. But in the days of super expensive litigation, where it can cost millions or tens of millions of dollars to defend a case or to litigate one, cooperation among attorneys general allows several states to streamline prosecution efforts and maximize the returns for their citizenry. I believe that attorneys general activism improves the public satisfaction at the state and federal levels of government. Not long ago, Congressman Richard Baker's efforts to limit states' enforcement powers coincided, not coincidentally, with the rising political fortunes of now governor but former attorney general of New York, Elliot Spitzer. Elliot Spitzer is credited by many as the attorney general who um, took activism to a new level. Some attorney generals in the country have modeled that effort by Spitzer. And in, in one of his very first efforts, Elliot Spitzer um, had a challenge with the SEC. The SEC had not made provisions and, in fact, rejected the suggestion of whistleblowers coming forward to help them promote litigation against a bad company or a company's bad practices. Elliot Spitzer, in fact, 
convinced the SEC that a whistleblower's role was important in restoring the public's confidence in law enforcement. And Elliot Spitzer, in fact, began prosecuting cases as an activist attorney general. Now, I believe that an attorney general has a, not only a right but a duty to, when he recognizes a harm, identifies the responsible party, develops a legal theory of liability, develops a factual basis to support the theory, and then models his, the losses of his state citizenry, he has not only a right but a duty to become active and to coordinate with other attorneys general in an effort to try to right that wrong. Thank you very much. We're a minute ahead of schedule. I want to tell you a story that I think illustrates this debate before we get into the questions. They've uncovered a massive cockfighting ring in the state of Louisiana. They dispatched their best investigator, a man named Boudreau, to investigate the situation. And he came back and he told the head of the Louisiana State Police that he had solved the mystery. He said, I believe that there are three groups involved in this cockfighting ring here in Louisiana. And his superior said, well, who is it? He said, well, the first one is trial lawyers. Because I got to the cockfight, I saw it for myself, and the trial lawyers had put a duck in the cockfight. And uh, he said, the superior said, well, Boudreaux, who else is involved? And he said, well, large corporations are involved. And he said, how do you know? And Boudreaux said, well, when the cockfight started between the fighting cock and the duck, the corporations began to bet on it. And I said, okay, that makes sense. He said, uh, who's the other group? He said, well, it's politicians. And the superior said, well, Boudreaux, how do you know it's politicians? He said, well, because the duck won. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, there's a great deal of uh, uh, sentiment out among the public on both sides of this argument. It's a healthy debate, and we're going to get into the questions now. I want to uh, note that uh, Mike Wallace with Wise Carter and Jim Craig with Phelps Dunbar developed some of these questions. Uh, I think these questions are uh, reasonably pointed from both sides, and uh, we're going to uh, ask our debaters to step to the podium now, and you'll be uh, staying at the podium for the duration of the uh, debate. We're going to go back and forth, as I said. Uh, we will uh, pose questions in an alternating fashion. When you, a question is posed to you, you'll have three minutes to answer. And then your colleague will have two minutes for rebuttal. We'll go on to the next question. The first question, uh, since Mr. Greva went first in opening statements, the first question will go to Mr. Langston. Mr. Langston, under Mississippi's campaign laws, the individual lawyers that the Attorney General hires to sue people can give him unlimited campaign contributions. The corporations those lawyers sue can give no more than $1,000 to a candidate of their choice. How can this situation possibly be fair? Thank you. Well, first of all, the campaign laws apply the same to everyone. My law firm, which is incorporated, can't give more than $1,000, just as maybe a target company can't. But the individual members of the corporation or executives or administrators or employees, they can all give just as an individual like myself can give or my wife can give. And it's all a matter of public record. People can see what we give. 
but you also have to take into account that there are other ways of giving, and I, I believe that corporations um, support um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for example, and they're very active in political campaigns, not only in Mississippi, but over the entire country. So there are other ways that corporations give to support campaigns or to support candidates. I may give individually, as any individual in this room or any individual in a corporation can give, but my company can't, and their company can't, and I think that's appropriate. Mr. Graver, rebuttal. I, I know nothing about uh, Mississippi campaign finance law. I'll just say uh, I'm dead set against any and all campaign contribution limitations. All we should do is publicize the records. All right, next question, Mr. Greva. Do you believe in federalism, allowing the separate states to be what Justice Brandeis called, quote, laboratories of democracy, end quote, by trying different solutions to political and legal problems? If Mississippi's Constitution makes the Attorney General an independent constitutional officer elected directly by the people and equal in stature to the governor, why can't the Attorney General bring civil actions against corporations? Can't the people fix any abuses of power by turning the incumbent out in the next election? Uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, what's critical is the distinction I tried to draw at the outset between uh, what stays at home uh, and what is domestic to the state uh, on the one hand and uh, the, the broader um, uh, country uh, on, on the other side. Uh, look, uh, I'll say... I'm not in favor of the present uh, Mississippi AG's office uh, against insurance corporations or insurance companies uh, in the wake of Katrina. Uh, but I'll dig in my heels uh, as a persuaded federalist and say that's their good right to do so because um, the consequence is that all state or, and state farm or whoever else insured things here depart from the state and Mississippi taxpayers get saddled uh, with insuring these, insuring these properties thereafter. That's Mississippi's business. That's no skin off my back. Um, in, in a lot of uh, other situations, however, um, it, the, the, the financial settlements, the tobacco settlement, and, and on and on and on, it is impossible for corporations to take that step and to say, we are out of here, because one way or the other, you get trapped in the state. And when that is the situation, then the electoral controls on the AG will no longer suffice because the electors, the voters themselves, have an incentive to pursue precisely the same strategy that the AG is pursuing, namely to loot out of state citizens um, in, uh, uh, to the, for the benefit of themselves and their own state. Rebuttal. By restricting the right of an attorney general to pursue civil litigation against a corporate wrongdoer, who are we trying to protect? You know, if they're not wrong, keep in mind, the key phrase is corporate wrongdoer. It is the duty of the attorney general of every state, whether that be Mississippi and Jim Hood or Mississippi and Mr. Hopkins, Republican or Democrat, it is the duty of the attorney general of his state to protect his citizens. And if a corporation has done something to harm a state's citizens, financially or otherwise, it is his duty to not only pursue civil litigation, but to coordinate that pursuit with other attorneys generals whose citizens may have been similarly harmed by the same defendant. 
Next question to Mr. Langston. Uh, during the 2007 regular session of the legislature, a bill was introduced that would have provided uh, oversight and accountability by requiring that an attorney general get uh, three bids uh, on legal work to be done for the state and that a review committee look over those bids and uh, advise on it. Section 107 of the Constitution requires that many state contracts to be awarded by competitive bids and statutes require bidding for most other state contracts. Why should the Attorney General be allowed to award contracts to his friends without bidding or oversight? Well, no one should award in a contract to anyone just because they're friends. That's absolute. But I've said many times, a culvert is a culvert is a culvert. When you're bidding on culverts, you're bidding on something that is uh, the same or standard or uniform. But when you're bidding on professional services, it's a different matter altogether. And uh, regardless of who the attorney general is, if he's going to pursue civil litigation against a well-heeled, international, multinational company, then he's going to have to have somebody with expertise, somebody with experience, somebody who's um, been in those type trenches before, somebody who has the financial wherewithal to maintain that litigation because it's expensive. And I want to remind uh, about you about the process. The process of the Attorney General bringing civil litigations is not that the Attorney General develops a, a litigation or a project and then looks for a friend to place it with. It's, it's the opposite. It's the private sector attorney who develops a project, develops litigation, hires the experts, and brings it to the Attorney General and says, General, here's a project. And this is against a defendant that's harmed Mississippians in some way. And I'd like for you to allow us to pursue this on behalf of the state. It's not the other way around. And the, the entire process is as transparent as it can be. Who he hired, what the terms of the hiring were, what the, when he files the complaint, what the legal theories are, what the factual basis is, when there's a resolution, then what the resolution is, what the fees were, what the expenses were. So we hear a lot about sunshine and transparency. <coughs> Certainly we need it, but guess what? We've already got it. Grave a rebuttal? I, I disagree respectfully. Um, uh, with respect to the first part, I think it's not so much, the, the problem is not so much who gets hired, I think it's the terms on which people get hired. Uh, I fully understand that sometimes AGs uh, find it useful and necessary uh, to basically deputize private attorneys. But I think what, what distorts the relation is the contingency fee arrangements. If they have to rent them out, I mean, if they have to hire private lawyers to pursue for all sorts of things, uh, a, a, a private defendant, let it, do, let it be done on, on, on a generous hourly basis, not on contingency fees, which really distort uh, the incentives. Uh, the second thing Joey said, uh, I find more disturbing, quite frankly. I mean, that these projects are really developed in the private sector by private uh, uh, plaintiffs' firms. And that looks to me an awful lot like, uh, dear Mr. AG, can we rent your offices uh, for the purposes of serving as a nominal plaintiff in a broader campaign that is altogether ours? And if you agree with that, we'll cut you in on the deal. I think that's very problematic. Next question to Mr. Greva, and this is a 
this is a lawyer-written long question. <laughs> I, I, I could Wallace, edit this down do to, to about five words. Uh, would you agree that the tort system, including but not limited to public interest suits brought by AGs, began expanding in the wake of the deregulation movement of the late 1970s and later? Didn't those lawsuits serve the purpose of privatizing regulation of business? Now that tort reform has been enacted in Mississippi, isn't the only remaining viable form of this phenomenon the use of public interest lawsuits by the Attorney General? If that is also prohibited, isn't it logical to assume that at some point, could somebody get me some oxygen, please? <laughs> the public will clamor for government regulation to mitigate oppressive business practices. Which would you rather have, public interest suits by the elected attorney general and decided by elected judges or a code of regulations passed by unelected administrators? The code of regulation any day of the week um, for, for, for any number of reasons. Uh, let me start at, I hope I remember the front end of that long question, right? Well, I'm not repeating um, <laughs> You're not going to hold me to it. Uh, as, I, as I tried to say, uh, yes, indeed, uh, the state regulatory campaigns, and especially the NAG multi-state campaigns, were direct response to federal deregulation. Um, the first NAG task forces were on antitrust and on airline advertising. Those were also, I mean, and those both initiatives were undertaken in direct response uh, to uh, federal deregulation uh, in, in the area. Um, the, as, as I said, uh, it, that was a deliberate political decision. It wasn't something that was cranked up by a few pointy-headed bureaucrats in some federal basement. We had a long um, and very vigorous political debate, which continues to this day, um, over those initiatives. And if, and if the, the, the choice is between that political process, however helter-skelter, however messy and, and detailed it is, on the one hand, and regulation by the most aggressive uh, and highly incentivized state attorney general, if that's the alternative, regulation any day. Rebuttal. Sid, would you mind repeating the 16th sentence of that question, please? Uh, I think it says, Jesus wept. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, as you might imagine, I don't favor Regulation. Instead, I do favor the right of an attorney general of a state to make a determination and not be restricted in his evaluation of potential civil litigation against corporate wrongdoers, for example. I think that um, uh, having 50 elected constitutional officers for our respective states, plus Puerto Rico, gives the public the confidence that the person that they chose to represent them as the chief legal officer of their state has the authority, unrestricted, to evaluate um, potential civil litigation against those who would harm his state's citizenry. And for him to be restricted by federal regulations would not only be inappropriate, but under today's law, illegal. Next question. <clears throat> Mr. Langston, you were associated with the state's successful uh, litigation against MCI WorldCom that brought uh, $100 million cash to the state, $15 million property forfeiture to the state, and uh, some other benefits. But Rule 
1.5 of the Rules of Professional Conduct provides, quote, a lawyer's fees shall be reasonable, end quote. How can it possibly be reasonable for a lawyer to collect thousands of dollars per hour for recovering money that belongs to the taxpayers? And I would, I would add to that question, uh, uh, your expenses uh, in that case were substantially less than the uh, net $7 million uh, in fees that went to you. How can, uh, how can that coexist with Rule 1.5? Thank you. And by the way, I certainly know one of the reasons I was invited to speak here today. I anticipated that the MCI issue might come up, and I'm glad that it did. I've been anxious to have a public forum to speak about it. But here's the reason why. And this is why what we did in that case and any other contingent fee case is consistent with the rules of ethics. When we take a case on a contingency fee, in a firm like mine, that's its business model. Other firms have other business models. And incidentally, I can promise you every firm's business models is made in hopes of their fees exceeding their expenses or else they need to change their business model. But in this particular case, uh, this was a novel and a, a matter of first impression when we took this suggestion of a tax fraud scheme to the Attorney General. It was developed by my law partner, Billy Quinn, when he was at Lundy and Davis. And when we took it to the Attorney General's office and we said, we'd like to pursue this, the Attorney General's office didn't have the uh, experience in these types of tax fraud schemes. They didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the financial wherewithal to litigate what could have been a many, many year and, and um, very expensive case. And he also knew that it was high risk because the tax commission had looked at it and said, no, I don't think we can recover. I don't think we should try this. But we were confident that we should and that we could recover. And so we convinced the attorney general to allow us to do it. And we did have a contingency fee contract. And under 755 and 7 of the Mississippi Code and under the uh, Pursue Energy case in Mississippi, it's perfectly legal for the Attorney General to hire outside counsel on contingency fee contracts. And so we took it and we took the risk of not recovering. We took the risk of spending the money and never realizing a profit on what many consider to be a very, very risky proposition. And we were fortunate and we prevailed and the state recovered. And incidentally, we didn't use our contingency fee contract in that case. After and during the negotiations, and I, um, Mr. Grevy indicated earlier that lawyers do this in secret, but there were a lot of people in there for it to be a secret during our negotiations. But we did reach a $100 million in cash settlement, plus about $15 million in property. And I thought we were done with the negotiations when General Hood said, yeah, but I'd like for all that to belong to Mississippi, and I want you to have to pay the lawyers on top of what we've agreed to take. And so we negotiated our fees separately with MCI, the successor to WorldCom, and did not in employ our contingency fee contract. Had we done so, the fee would have been more, but we agreed to do that. So I, I, it's consistent with the rules of ethics. It's consistent with the statutory and case law in Mississippi. Rebuttal. Uh, not a rebuttal. I just want to sort of add something to this. Look, um, this settlement brought $100 million to Mississippi. Um, that's the problem. And the problem is 50 can play that game. Every attorney general um, uh, boasts about, I brought $2 billion 
to New York. I brought $1.5 billion to California. The question is, where does the money come from? Either these people, either these states treated themselves to tax hike by somebody who, I mean, if, if all the money comes out of that respective state, uh, or, or else the money comes from out of state. But not everybody can win in that game. Uh, it's just a game of, of, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, um, call it what you will. There is no net social gain in, in that kind of an arrangement at all. And so I'm not impressed at all when somebody says, we brought X dollars to the state. Okay. Next question, Mr. Greva, along the same line. What's wrong with a lawsuit that raises the price of tobacco, reduces smoking, and compensates states for tobacco-related medical expenses? How can you complain about the tobacco settlement when Congress ratified it by letting the states keep the Medicaid recovery money that would otherwise have gone back to the federal government? Whoa. Um, what I find wrong uh, with the agreement, this is about the 1998 um, Master Settlement Agreement, uh, which resolved uh, all outstanding litigation uh, between state attorneys general of 46 states plus four grandfathered state states on the one hand and the major tobacco manufacturers uh, on the other. Uh, over the first uh, 25 years of that agreement, um, it produces or is estimated to produce somewhere upwards of $400 million in payments. Uh, who pays that? Not the tobacco companies to the state AGs and the trial lawyers. No. The agreement is structured so that consumers pay well over 90% of the entire price. How are the profits split? Answer, roughly $250 billion, billion dollars, uh, for the states, roughly $30 billion for the trial lawyers. The rest is pure monopoly profits for Philip Morris and RJR Reynolds. I have nothing against an agreement that nails to tobacco manufacturers, improves public health, and on and on and on. My question is, why did we have to line Philip Morris's pockets in that agreement? Rebuttal. Thank you. In the tobacco settlement, as you all, as many of you know, Mississippi recovered much of its Medicaid dollars that we had spent treating tobacco-related illnesses. That's a great benefit to a state like Mississippi. There were social benefits because it low, as a result of the settlement, it lowered the uh, teen smoking rates, and that's critical to not only the health of our young people and the health of the people of Mississippi, but it's critical to the future cost uh, if, 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 if we didn't lower health smoking rates or teen smoking rates, then those teens would develop tobacco-related illnesses that we would have to pay to treat when they got older. Um, and there are, are tremendous financial benefits to a state like ours. And who pays that? He talked about the consumer paying it. That's the smoking consumer. And that those who smoke in the United States and those who smoke in other countries in the world no doubt are paying this premium because it's being passed on to the consumer, no question about it, but it's being passed on to the smoking consumer who is uh, purchasing and using a product which he knows will create a health problem, and, it, and his health pro problem may very well become the problem of the state in which he lives if he has to be treated with Medicaid funds. 
Next question, Mr. Langston, sections 173 and 174 of the Mississippi Constitution require that the Attorney General and all districts' attorney be paid a fixed salary. Since the Attorney General cannot be paid a portion of the recovery when he sues a business on behalf of the state, why should he be allowed to hire a private lawyer on a contingent fee arrangement to pursue a claim in a way that he himself cannot pursue? It's absolutely good that a public official should not be allowed to recover a contingency fee for himself in any civil litigation that he might pursue. As to hiring private attorneys who, on contingency fee basis who would participate with him in civil litigations, it's essential that he be allowed to do that. For a number of reasons, there are a lot of good lawyers that work at the Attorney General's office in Mississippi and in other attorneys' general offices. But lawyers with the experience and the expertise in complex securities litigation, complex pharmaceutical litigation, complex business litigation are generally not found in state offices because that's not where the focus of an Attorney General's office generally is. The Current Attorney General in Mississippi, his office has approximately 3,400 civil litigations that they're handling right now. 18 or less than 1% have been um, are being worked on by private attorneys with the Attorney General. 18 out of the 3,400. In all 18 of those, you will find that it requires experience, expertise, and a very specific. area of law. Now, in addition to that, he doesn't have the budget. He doesn't have the manpower to litigate these types of litigations. You, it's, it's critical for an attorney general, and again, whether he be Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter, whether it be Mississippi or Oregon, he'd be able to call on the private sector to bring in his expertise, to bring in his experience, and to bring in the manpower and bring in the funds to prosecute these expensive cases. Rebuttal? Uh, <clears throat> this is why I'm uh, this, the the contingency fee arrangements. Uh, this is why I, at the front end said or, or tried to explain um, that's the problem to me. Look, the reason why I think it's problematic to operate with contingency fees is that every regulatory statute in the United States, um, if fully enforced would shut down the country in an instant. Whether you talk about Rule 10b-5 of the SEC, whether you talk about state regulatory laws, uh, there's always, every one of these statutes is written in broad general terms as it has to. The regulations are the same. Uh, And so all of these statutes pose a risk of under-enforcement as well as over-enforcement. And it's the job of regulators to find some reasonable level of enforcement. And that is not the the attitude that is being promoted by contingency fees. The logic of contingent fees is the more the merrier, let's go for broke. Um, And and so you introduce into the regulatory system uh, a bias uh, that that is shared, by the way, by state attorneys general, um, but rarely by regulators. I'll give you an example. Uh, It is not a coincidence uh, that the, um, uh, uh, the proceedings against Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and so on and so forth were brought by one of the few states that actually 
um, has transferred regulatory authority to the state attorney general over those industries as opposed to some securities regulators. The regulators in those states were very well aware of the need to somehow balance the needs to combat uh, securities frauds with the needs to maintain um, liquid securities markets. And AG um, has operates under no uh, such competing incentives, has always an enforcement uh, mentality and contingent fee arrangements merely exacerbate and reinforce that already dismaying tendency towards over-enforcement. Okay. Final question. Corporations, this goes to Mr. Grave. Corporations are large, wealthy, and powerful. At least one insurance company has stated that it will cease doing business in the state of Mississippi as a result of Hurricane Katrina lawsuits. How can any one litigant bringing a single lawsuit and with damages already capped by the legislature bring an equal amount of clout to bear on corporate decision making. If the Attorney General cannot bring cases in the public interest, then can't corporations get away with just about anything? Uh, I'm not for, I mean, <laughs> in, in the course of our, my remarks, I said perhaps surprisingly um, that I, I think the uh, insurance litigation um, in Mississippi, however ill-advised um, I think it is, uh, is, is perfectly within uh, the Attorney General's uh, portfolio. Um, my, look, what we're worried about, what everybody is worried about, um, is not uh, the authority of the State Attorney General per se, but rather the potential for abuse. And during my remarks, I've, paid, uh, I've made or placed particular emphasis on, on the tendency towards abuse that comes from uh, enforcing these, the, uh, uh, the state laws outside the state's own boundaries and, in effect, uh, for the entire country. That is my problem, not the authority uh, of the state attorney general per se, which, for all the reasons you just mentioned, is entirely warranted. Rebuttal. You know, state attorney general serves as a bit of a watchdog over his citizenry. And his yard is his state. And if there is a corporation who is taking advantage of people in his state, harming them in some way, financial, physical, whatever, then it's his duty to not only be active in pursuing that corporate wrongdoer, but to coordinate his efforts with other attorneys general in other states where that same corporate wrongdoer, the same offender, may be harming citizens in another state. But if they go too far, you know, there are checks and balances. You know, the federals have their authority, states have their authority, and then there's some in the middle where they kind of battle with each other over authority. But the federal government can enact uh, preemption legislation if the uh, attorneys generals go too far. I don't think that they have. I think what they've done is not only healthy for their states, but it's, it, it provides an incentive for corporate wrongdoers to do well. And we're talking about corporate wrongdoers, not good corporations, not good corporate people. And that's, they're the majority. Most are good. But the bad ones have to be addressed by somebody like an aggressive attorney general who coordinates with his fellow attorneys general. Thank you.
As we said uh, at the beginning, uh, we would end the debate today with closing statements from our debaters, and uh, we're going since uh, Mr. Greva uh, went first, we're going to give Mr. Langston the last word, and in closing statements, we're going to ask uh, Mr. Greva to begin with three minutes of closing statement. I may not need my three minutes, but thank you. Uh, and be before this ends, thanks again, Joey, for doing this. Thanks, Sid, for, for um, uh, moderating so competently. Um, first, uh, what, what strikes me as most remarkable um, about the public response and the political response to attorneys general uh, investigations and settlements is that nobody really asks about was this on balance a good idea when all is said and done? Was this regulatory campaign really a good idea? I'm, I have no difference with Joey about disciplining corporate wrongdoers, but what happened in the settlement agreement was these are tobacco companies, okay, where everybody said if, if there's any bad corporate citizen at all, it's the tobacco guys. What did the master settlement do? It handed them $150 billion in monopoly profits. Had they done that on their own, they'd all be in jail. That is what the state attorneys general did, not discipline anybody uh, in, in that proceeding. Similarly, the uh, if you look at the research settlement agreement um, with, with Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and, and, and two dozen other banks, uh, that is sort of Elliot Spitzer's boast. The research that is publicly available has gone down by over 30%. The analysts just left the sector and went to hedge funds and where they now do their research. Is that on net a good result? Has that restored investor confidence? And there are many, many other examples like that. I'm just, I keep looking for one where the regulatory effort that came out of this actually did one good, it did some good on, on net. And my final point is this. Uh, Joey made this point, and, and I think it's a very profound and important point. Uh, yes, the founders expected federalism to in, uh, entail and imply competition including competition between the federal government and the states for the affections and loyalties of their citizens. That's a very important point and a very forceful point. My problem with the existing system is that the competition, the error correction mechanism, states can step in if, if the feds are, are run by Harvey Pitt and fall down on the job, that the error correction mechanism runs in only one direction, no state can compensate for federal overregulation should it occur because the federal floor will govern one way or the other. The only thing states can realistically do is pile on, and not one state but 50 at the same time. And I simply do not trust an error correction mechanism that can only run in one direction. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Langston. Thank you. It is to my pleasure to be here today. As I look around the room, and I know many people here, I'm just so impressed with uh, the fact that I'm eating lunch with so many accomplished people in so many different fields. And I, I, I'm sincere about that, and I, it makes me proud to, to be from Mississippi. But on this matter of the Attorney General, and I know that it's a current topic. This is an election year. It's going to be a topic. You're going to hear about MCI. You're going to hear about Joey Langston. You're going to hear about contingency fees. And I get that. I'm a big boy. I can take it. But 
I want you to know something about the way that happens as a practical matter. When the Attorney General takes his office and he becomes the effectively the leader of the largest law firm in the state of Mississippi and his lawyers are bound, duty-bound to protect Mississippians, then he's got to do that. And sometimes that requires working with the private sector. Sometimes it requires working with other states' attorneys general. Now, regardless of who's in the attorney general's office, we should expect our attorney general to do that because if he doesn't, then he's not going to be able to take on the big, the wealthy corporate wrongdoers. And I, I keep emphasizing, I know I use corporate wrongdoers a lot, but I want to make sure you understand that they shouldn't pursue good companies, and most companies are good. Most insurance executives are good. You know, most people that work in companies in this state and others have a good objective. They, they represent their stockholders well. But when you have a, a bad one, a bad executive, a bad company, who sees that um, it's better to have profits than to follow the law or to treat people well, then your attorney general has to step in. Presently, our law permits him to do that, and it should be that way, because if you regulate or restrict his ability to pursue corporate wrongdoers, people who act bad and harm his citizenry, then you're going to be doing a disservice to the state of Mississippi and to the other states. So regulation is not the way to go. Restricting the right of the attorney general is not the way to go. Might you get a bad attorney general from time to time who runs amok and, and is suing everybody right and left with no factual basis and no legitimate legal theory? I haven't seen that. But if you do, you can replace him at the ballot box. But what's happened here in Mississippi is a good thing. The tobacco litigation initiated here, that's a good thing. The uh, MCI litigation, incidentally, our, our legal theory was the mirror opposite of 16 other states. If we were right, they were wrong. So we took that challenge and we brought, I don't know how $100 million coming to Mississippi is a bad thing for us. I understood your point, but it was a good thing because it was taxes that were due us. So I think that restricting the rights of this constitutional office is not the way to go by federal regulation or otherwise. And I thank you very much for your time and your attention. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That concludes the debate. Brad? Thanks a whole bunch. Sure. On behalf of uh, Pepper Crutcher and the Federalist Society of Mississippi, I thank you for attending, and we'll look forward to the next program. Have a nice day. Incidentally, if you have a business card and you want a copy of our paper, if you would give it to me, I'll be happy to mail it to you. In case you have trouble going to sleep at night, you might want to read it. <laughs> and 